Would you like to know the inside scoop about what it really takes to win your Social Security Disability Claim? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Jonathan Ginsberg, your host at this SSD Answers podcast, which is dedicated to helping honest, hardworking folks discover how to navigate Social Security's confusing and frustrating disability program. In each episode, we'll discuss proven tactics and strategies that work and will result in favorable decisions. Social Security makes it difficult to recover your disability benefits no matter what your medical issue. I want to put the odds back in your favor. Hi there, this is Jonathan Ginsberg, and welcome back to another episode here at the SSDAnswers.com podcast. And last time we talked about uh, how Social Security defines the term disability, and that being you are unable to engage in substantial gainful activity because of a medically determinable condition or conditions that has lasted or is expected to last 12 consecutive months or result in death. That's how they define it. There's very much a focus on work, substantial gainful activity being uh, somewhat synonymous with a simple entry-level type of job. So we have to basically prove that you would not be able to do a simple entry-level job. So how do we do that? Well, there are th- turns out there are three what I would call theories of disability, three arguments we can make to prove that you are disabled. Um, argument one or theory one is do you meet a social security listing, a social security listing? Argument two is do you meet a grid rule, one of social security's medical vocational guidelines? Argument three is, can we prove that your functional capacity for work has been so reduced or or, or eroded by your medical condition that you would not be able to work? So there are three theories, the listing, the grid rules, and functional capacity is kind of my shorthand for them. And we can use any of them or all of them uh, when we're approaching uh, Social Security talking to a judge. So let's go through each one of those so you understand kind of what it takes to Uh, prove that you are disabled. Let's start with the listing. Do you meet a listing? And if you're going to argue listing, that's basically the way that most people, if they're going to get approved early, it's because they meet a listing. And the reason for that is that the listings, which Social Security describes uh, medical conditions in exhaustive detail, uh, medical records will show that typically, lab results and so forth. And the adjudicators or the claims adjusters at Social Security Um, they can more easily spot that. Grid rules, for some reason, even though it's fairly straightforward, there's a vocational element to it that adjudicators don't seem to be be very comfortable with. And regarding the functional capacity exam or or evaluation, adjudicators really don't like to go there because it's judgment calls. So generally speaking, in the listing is where they can look at medical records and say, yes, you meet a listing or no, you don't. And if you do meet a listing, you get approved. And about a third of the people who apply uh, are approved. And they're generally approved because they meet a listing. So if you want to learn about the listings and take a look to see whether you might meet a listing, I have a website called, uh, incidentally, coincidentally, meetalisting.com, www.meetalisting.com. And you can go there and you can read about how to meet the listings and some case studies, but also links to Social Security's 
Blue Book. And way back in the day, it actually used to be a printed book that was blue. They called it the Blue Book. Now it's actually online, and you can access it. It's updated frequently. You can look at it, and when you look at the listings, and I'm going to have a link to meet a listing into the actual listings down below in the show notes here, but when you look at the listings, there are basically 14 body systems described in the listings, and each of these listings within each of these 14 body systems, there may be a few, maybe two or three, or there may be 10 or 15 subcategories of medical diseases or conditions that fit within that body system. So for example, listing one talks about musculoskeletal problems. Um, And within that, there may be several different uh, musculoskeletal problems, anything from a non-healing fracture to an amputation of a limb. Um, there are listings for the cardiac system. There are listings for mental mental health problems. There are listings for cancers. Again, 14 body systems. And if you want to take a look, uh, look at me, go to meetalisting.com and you can look it up. Um, and a lot of times, even if I don't think the case is listing level, I will start my inquiry when I'm looking at a case by looking at the listings because uh, that will give me some sort of an idea as to what I've got to prove and how severe the problem needs to be. Realize that Social Security intentionally makes the listings very hard to meet because they want they want to make it difficult to get approved for disability, but you get a sense based on the listing of how Social Security considers that particular condition. So, for example, um, if you have an amputated limb or body part, Social Security is generally going to see that as being a pretty significant problem because when it comes to working, uh, there's not a lot of jobs you can do, and they recognize there's a lot of uh, issues related uh, to that. Now, Uh, A couple of the listings that I want to point out, I'm just going to go through, and and again, this is just a representative sample, uh, but I want you to get an idea of what Social Security, what level of impairment you've got to have. Listing 1.03 is in the musculoskeletal system, and it talks about uh, reconstructive surgery of a major weight-bearing joint. And basically, if you have had a surgery on, let's say, whether it's a knee or a hip or your back, and you are left with the inability to ambulate or walk effectively uh, and return to effective ambulation uh, is not expected to occur within 12 months of onset, you meet that listing. So if you have um, a surgery, let's say you have your knee replaced and you have complications and you can't walk, then you might very well meet a listing. If you have a back problem, you undergo surgery, and you have failed back syndrome, and you can't walk because of that, or you need a cane or an assistive device, you very well may may meet listing 1.03. So that's the level of impairment. Um, Listing 11.05 describes benign, not malignant, but benign brain tumors. And essentially, if you have a brain tumor that is not cancerous, but it results in the disorganization of motor function in two extremities, resulting in an extreme limitation in the inability to stand up from a seated position, balance while standing or walking, or use the upper extremities. So if you have a benign tumor that's pressing on a nerve or because of surgery or whatever has resulted in uh, your inability to use uh, both arms or an arm and a leg or both legs, um, and it limits you from standing up from a seated position or balancing or using your upper extremities, using your arms, you would meet that listing. So you see it's not, you've got to be at a fairly 
high level of impairment to meet one of these listings. And what I try to do, if if I was trying to meet a listing, um, I would ask my doctor, I'd print out a copy of the listings that I thought were appropriate. Uh, I would ask my doctor to draft a narrative report basically saying that, yes, I meet this listing. Now, other listings, and some of them get very, very detailed, also include uh, kind of a mini a functional capacity evaluation where you want your doctor to talk about the limitations that arise from the medical condition. So I wouldn't say that meeting a listing simply means you've got to have a diagnosis. Um, generally, there's going to be a diagnosis and something and some other limitation in terms of your functioning, but it's not nearly as detailed as the limitation of functioning evaluation you would need uh, in a functional capacity evaluation, which we're going to talk about in a second. But uh, meeting a listing essentially means you've got to have a diagnosis of a severe problem and uh, some level of limitation that naturally arises from that. Social Security will assume if you meet a listing that there's going to be a level, a significant level of limitation. And by the way, uh, you may have heard the term compassionate allowance. And this is basically, these are medical conditions that are essentially incurable, probably going to lead to death. Um, and you really don't need to show too much other than the diagnosis. So metastatic um, cancers uh, typically fall with that, within that or certain types of birth defects fall within uh, the compassionate allowance. And I'm going to put a link down in the show notes where you can look at the current list of compassionate allowances. Social Security does update that periodically. Um, but cur- the current list is going to be at the website that I give you, www.ssa.gov backslash compassionate allowances uh, backslash conditions.htm is the current URL for that. So bottom line is um, you want to show that you have got uh, some of these issues and you've got some limitations associated with, like with the benign brain tumor one that I talked about before, you need to have a marked limitation in understanding, remembering, and applying information, or a marked limitation in interacting with others, marked limitation in concentrating, persisting, or a marked limitation in adapting and managing oneself. So again, we've got to have the diagnosis, and in this case, uh, the, for the for listing 11.05, marked limitations, marked meaning uh, that it's pretty much all the time um, in one of the following activities. Again, understanding, concentrating, adapting. So you see it's not a very detailed fun- functional capacity evaluation, but it's enough where it shows that you, you have more than simply a benign brain tumor. That's not enough because you may have a benign brain tumor and no associated problems. But if you have some marked limitations and other issues, then you would meet that listing. So uh, that's basically the big picture about listings. They are going to describe very, very serious medical problems that uh, are going to naturally give rise to uh, certain functional problems, certain activity limitations that uh, in a work setting would make it impossible for you to work. And if you meet a listing, generally speaking, that's the avenue, that's the argument to make to get approved early. I will tell you that I have argued for listings at, at hearings, and I'd say at most 5 to 7% of my hearings are approved on the listing. Most of the time, 
Uh, judges seem to assume if the case was listing level, it would have gotten approved early. And rarely do judges approve cases on listing. And I don't necessarily think it's because people don't meet a listing. I just think that judges are just not used to approving on that basis. So it doesn't happen very often. But we still could use that if we were at a hearing. So that is kind of the big picture about the Social Security listings. Again, uh, I refer you to www.metalisting.com where you can read the listings, link to them. You can look at some case studies and how I broke this all down uh, in writing. So I'm going to take a break now. we get back, we're going to talk about the grid rules, that argument, and we're also going to talk about functional capacity evaluations. Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets of Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case, what to do if you're denied, how to avoid common mistakes, and my ever-popular how to avoid trick questions from the judge. Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay. Act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. Okay, we are now back and we're going to talk about Uh, The grid rules next. This is the second argument that you can make to try to argue that you are disabled. And generally speaking, uh, the grid rules are something that you might argue at a hearing. No reason why you could not argue for a grid rule approval at initial or the reconsideration appeal. But my experience has been that the adjudicators used by Social Security don't really understand the grid rules and they involve a certain amount of judgment. Um, And so I rarely, I don't think I've ever seen an early approval based on the grid rules. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't include it. I'm sure they do happen. Uh, but I do think you would need to identify the specific grid rule um, and explain why you meet that. So basically what the grid rules are, they apply to claimants over age 50. And there's, I think, one that applies for, for claimants under age 50. I actually won a case on that one. Judge didn't believe it existed, and it actually did. So it's pretty rare. But for the most part, it's people over age 50 with a medical problem that impacts their physical capacity. You cannot use the grid rules for mental health problems. So if you're alleging disability based on only on depression, anxiety, PTSD, the grid rules do not apply. Only They only apply for physical problems uh, that would impact your lifting, carrying, walking, standing, that sort of thing. And generally speaking, the grid rules are most applicable to people who have a limited education, high school or less, and unskilled work background. And again, there's some that apply for people with more than a high school education, some that apply for people who have um, skilled work backgrounds. But for the most part, the purpose of the grid rules is to recognize that uh, folks who are over age 50 with limited education and limited work skills are going to have a really difficult time finding a job, even if they retain some capacity. So uh, what's interesting about the grid rules is that you don't have to be totally disabled. Uh, You can meet the grid rules even if you could do sit-down type of work, for example, or light type of work. You could still meet a grid rule. In fact, that's how you meet the grid rules. Um, So you don't have to be totally disabled. And that really just represents the bias that Social Security has 
for claimants over the age of 50 with a limited education. And that bias, in my view, uh, flows throughout the entire Social Security disability system. So even if uh, you are arguing for a listing or you're arguing uh, for functional capacity, you have an advantage if you're over 50. The Social Security disability system has a built-in bias in favor of people uh, over the age of 50 with a limited education. And I've had some people say to me, that's just really not fair. You know, I've worked hard. I went, I went to college and I paid my, my way through or I have student loans I had to, to pay and I got a good job and I'm now I'm disabled. And why is it that someone who you know, didn't go to school, who's got an unskilled background, uh, they have an advantage over me? And that's just unfortunately the way the system is. So uh, it's really designed for people uh, who are over the age of 50 with a limited education. And if you uh, have a more of a, a higher education or if you have skilled work backgrounds, uh, don't fret. There's other theories we can use, but this is what the grid rules are for. So when we talk about the grid rules, one of the things, and by the way, you can I've got a website for that too uh, called gridrules.net, www.gridrules.net. When you go there, you'll see that you have to understand certain terms, um, sedentary, which is basically sit-down work, or you're, you're, you need to be sitting for six out of eight hours in a day, lifting up to 10 pounds occasionally, light work, which means you can stand for six out of eight hours a day, lift 10 pounds frequently, 20 pounds occasionally, and then you have medium and heavy work and very heavy work. And then you also have the concepts of unskilled work, which would be something that you can walk in off the street and do unskilled work. Uh, Semi-skilled work, which is basically where you have to have a certain level of alertness and attention to detail, coordination, dexterity, and it might require a few weeks to a few months of training. Then you have skilled work, which is where you have to use judgment, planning, adjustments, uh, usually some level of education and on-the-job training, and it may require months of training. So uh, basically the the grid rules are going to work best for people who have uh, unskilled work background, who are limited to sedentary type of work, who are over age 50. That's going to be the most, the grids that apply most. And if you look at them, the reason they call them the grids is imagine a grid table where you have a line of cells, you know, like a, a spreadsheet going across and up and down. That, that's a grid. And so depending on where you fall with these different categories, that'll show you uh, whether you meet the grid rules. And again, if you go to gridrules.net and you look at it, you'll see how I laid it out um, as a grid. So uh, if we want to look at an example, um, look under the sedentary grid at 201.14. And this would be uh, for an individual who's age 50 to 54, again, limited to sedentary work, sedentary being uh, that they're sitting for six out of eight hours in a day and lifting uh, really no more than 10 pounds. Uh, so in 201.14, uh, sedentary individual 50 to 54, high school graduate or more, uh, but no direct entry into skilled work. Um, and past work is basically semi-skilled or skilled, but the skills are not transferable. And we have another concept here called transferability of skills, which basically means that the skills you got at one job could be used in another. So, for example, an executive secretary might have a transferable skill to being a data entry clerk. I'm making that up, but that could be one. Or there are certain types of um, 
uh, of jobs where uh, you pick up skills uh, based on what you do that you could take it to a lower level uh, in that same type of industry. And again, this is sort of why I think the adjudicators are less likely to um, approve a case at initial because they've got to deal with the, all these different concepts of transferable skills and light work and sedentary work and that sort of thing. Um, so an example in this situation might be a person who's got past work as a book uh, bookkeeper or a bill collector um, in a particular industry. Um, they don't necessarily have any sort of entry into skilled work, and their work is not going to be transferable out of their industry. So in that situation, a 53-year-old uh, woman who's limited to sedentary work, and again, the doctor's got to say you're limited to sedentary work with a high school uh, diploma, uh, and no transferable skills could be approved under the grid rules. Um, and again, the reason, uh, as I mentioned before, it's based on physical limitations. The person would be limited to sedentary work because of their physical limitations. Um, you will also notice when you look at the sedentary grid table, there's a good number of the grids uh, that result in a finding of disabled. When you go over to the light table, the light grid table, you'll see a lot fewer. And the reason for that is that basically we're saying here is that uh, you have the capacity to do uh, you are limited to light work. You could do light level work. And remember, um, light is described as uh, standing for six out of eight hours in a day, lifting 10 pounds frequently and 20 pounds occasionally. So you've got some capacity there. So if you can do light work, um, there's not a whole lot of grids that are going to leave you um, disabled. They're going to have you found disabled. Um, so for example, if you look at uh, look at the grid um, 202.09. Um, that is an individual who is age 50 to 54, but they're illiterate or unable to communicate in English and a past, past work is unskilled. That individual would be disabled under the grid rules. Now, most of the grid rules are going to apply to people age 55 or older. Again, if it sort of, it sort of makes sense because it fits within the scheme uh, of the grid rules that people who are older with less education, less transferable work skills uh, are likely to have a difficult time finding a job. Therefore, they would be essentially disabled from work. Um, so if you look at the light grid rules, you'll see most of the approvals or most of the positives that they're disabled is for people over age 55. Um, and typically those are folk, going to be folks with a limited, less than a high school education and no transferable skills. So for example, a truck driver um, who has, who is limited, who's age 55 or older and who has a less than an eighth grade education and no transferable skills, uh, because if you're a truck driver, uh, most of the skills you're going to have are going to be driving. And if you can't, uh, if you can't drive anymore, uh, then there's a, decent chance that you could you could fit within the grid rules. So basically what we're looking at is people age 50 plus, um, at age 55 it becomes even a little bit easier, and those folks uh, very well might be approved under the grid rules. And typically uh, we get to a hearing, and if you've got an I have an individual who's age 50 or 55, I always try to make a grid rule argument uh, and always try to develop that testimony so that the judge can use the grid rules. My experience has been judges like using the grid rules because it's uh, very quick um, and it doesn't require a lot of explanation. They can simply say, I found that this, this individual has this level of education. That's objective. That this individual is a certain age. That's objective. And as far as these 
transferable transferability of skills, that's something a vocational witness can tell us about. So it takes a lot of the judgment out of the uh, the case. So a judge can simply apply the, the, the grid rules and find somebody disabled. So if you're age 50 or age 55 especially, and even more so at age 60, by the way, but if you're over age 50, it's all, and you've got a physical problem, it's always wise to look at the grid rules to see whether or not there may be an argument that you could meet uh, one of those grid rules and get approved that way. Um, I'm going to take another quick break now. When we get back, we're going to talk about the functional capacity argument for proving disability. Hi, this is Attorney Jonathan Ginsberg. Do you have a winning Social Security disability claim? Visit my website at ssdanswers.com and request your free case evaluation. Give me some details about your case and I'll let you know what I think. There's nothing more fulfilling to me as a disability attorney than to see a deserving client win disability benefits and I'd like to help you reach that goal. Again, visit ssdanswers.com and request your free case evaluation. Thanks. Okay, now it's time to go into our third discussion point for this episode, and that is um, how to use the functional capacity um, argument when trying to prove that you are disabled for Social Security purposes. And this functional capacity argument is really the most common one used at Social Security disability hearings. In fact, if you look at the uh, case studies section of my website, for the number four, socialsecuritydisability.com, and again, I'll have that linked in the show notes. Um, you can look at these case studies and you see where I've described uh, the cases that I've tried where judges have posed uh, hypothetical questions to the vocational witnesses that describe a variety of uh, limitations. These are all functional capacity limitations. When I mean functional capacity, when you're working, you obviously have to function at work. And your capacity to function is obviously a necessary part of your a work product or you're producing work. So if you cannot function at work because of limitations, uh, then uh, you would theoretically be disabled by Social Security. So the question is, would you be able to perform the functions of a simple entry-level type of job? Um, imagine the easiest job that exists, something where you're sitting at a table, you're putting ink pens in a box. You can sit or stand. There's no interaction with the public or supervisors or coworkers. You basically just have to be there. I call it a warm body job. You know, if you can fog a mirror, you can do one of these jobs. Minimum wage, you'd be bored out of your skull. But the point is, if you could do one of these jobs, you're not disabled. So when a judge does a functional or performs a functional capacity evaluation, he or she is going to look at your physical limitations, your mental health limitations, medication side effects, anything that would impact your capacity for work. Um, and the judge, what the judge does is after taking testimony, he or she will turn to the vocational witness, and the vocational witness is there to help translate uh, the medical findings into work limitations. The judge will pose uh, a very specific hypothetical question that reflects his or her understanding of your limitations, then ask the vocational witness, how does that impact your ability to or your capacity to perform your past work or any other kind of work? Um, and the judge, again, is going to be very, very specific. So, for example, if you have a, a moderate physical limitation on your right dominant arm, your right-handed, but no limits on your left arm, 
Um, what does that mean? The judge might look at that and say, well, jobs that require regular, ongoing, bilateral use of your arms, both hands, both arms, over shoulder level would be out. But if there was a job that required only the occasional use of both arms and overhead reaching, um, then you might be able to do that. But if it's frequent uh, use of your arms overhead reaching, you couldn't do that. So it it becomes very, very granular, very specific to the questions the judge judge asks. So let me give you an example of a hypothetical question, and this is just one I've kind of pulled from my files. It doesn't relate to a specific case, but the judge might say something like this to the vocational witness, and this is a functional capacity hypothetical. The judge would say, Mr. Vocational Witness, um, I want you to assume we have an individual who's the same age as our claimant, the same education background, same work experience. I want you to assume further this individual is limited to light work. And remember, light work has a very specific definition. That would be standing for six out of eight hours, lifting 10 pounds frequently, 20 pounds occasionally. I want you to assume this individual could occasionally climb ladders, ropes, and scaffolds. This individual could frequently engage in kneeling, crouching, crawling, stooping. This individual uh, should not perform any work around hazardous equipment, around vibrating machinery, or work at unprotected heights. This individual should avoid working near fluorescent lighting. This individual should avoid working in a job around dust, fumes, or gases. This individual should be limited to simple work with no more than two steps involved in the work. Um, There should only be occasional interaction with the general public, but frequent interaction with coworkers and supervisors. And this individual would need an unscheduled restroom break on average once every three days. So what does that mean? And again, there's no way to answer that without knowing more about the specific case. But the point is, is that uh, these are limitations that the judge must have would have pulled from testimony, your testimony, or from the medical records. And based on uh, that question, the, the vocational witness can say this individual would or would not be able to go back to past work, or this individual could or could not do any other kind of work in the national economy. Uh, my guess is with this hypothetical, there would be jobs that vocational witness could find. Vocational witness will use a book called the Dictionary of Occupational Titles to try to find jobs that list every job in the national economy, the caveat being that it's really outdated. It was not last updated in the 1990s. So it's outdated, so now they're using additional resources. But the, for the most part, they're going to look at the Dictionary of Occupational Titles or the DOT, and the vocational witness would try to find jobs. And then the next hypothetical, the judge might add to this one and say, well, instead of needing an unscheduled restroom break every three days, he needs it every day. Um, what does that do? And that, I will tell you from experience, that if you have to take an unscheduled break every day, that's going to make it more difficult to uh, to, to get a job or to sustain employment at an unskilled entry-level kind of job. So that might lead to a finding of, of being disabled. So that's what judges do. They will go through these, these hypothetical questions. And I get a lot of questions in my YouTube channel about the hypotheticals the judge asks. And some judges will only ask one or two questions that really reflect what he or she is thinking. Other judges may ask 10 questions, and maybe question number seven reflects what he's thinking. We just don't know. Um, and a lot of times there's no way to know until you get the decision because judges generally do not announce their decision at the time of the hearing. Um, but 
the bottom line is, is that you want to have as many questions coming from the judge that contain uh, very, very extensive limitations. You want your testimony to reflect extensive limitations, very specific things, not all the time or not very much, but you want to be, you know, 10 minutes here, seven minutes there, 15 feet. You want to be very specific so that uh, the questions that the judge asks contain so many limitations that the vocational witness has no choice but to say, I can find no jobs this person can do. So that's the functional capacity theory of disability. So again, we've got three theories, meet a listing, meet a grid rule, or prove that your functional capacity would preclude uh, competitive employment. We can use any of these theories in a hearing. We can use all of them. And you don't have to limit yourself to, to one. So I may make an argument that I think my client meets the grid rule or meets a listing, but in the alternative, uh, that his functional capacity has been so reduced by his impairments that he would not be able to perform competitive work. So we need to be prepared. I need to be prepared to argue all of those uh, all of those theories of disability, and you need to be prepared to give testimony uh, that allows the judge to understand uh, that you have very specific problems, specific limitations that would preclude what is called competitive work, work that would, would exist out on out on the, the real life workplace. So that is it. That will do it for this episode, and I will look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks a lot. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode of the SSDAnswers.com podcast. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit SSDAnswers.com backslash podcast for show notes and links to all of my Social Security Disability resources. And let me know what you're thinking. Your questions and suggestions are always welcome. Until next time, this is your host, Jonathan Ginsberg, reminding you to never give up and to keep fighting for the disability benefits you deserve.